Content warning. The following episode discusses gender-based violence, domestic abuse, coercive control, and stalking. In 1998, Fiona Lang was charged under the Road Traffic Act of being in charge of a motor vehicle while over the limit, drink driving. Fiona pled the defense of necessity, saying she was fleeing in fear for her life. The sheriff dismissed her plea, discounting the evidence that Fiona provided to support her claim. She was charged, and leave to appeal was refused. Is the law neutral, and does it serve us all equally? The Scottish Feminist Judgments Project attempts to answer these questions. Legal academics and practitioners got together to rewrite historical cases through a feminist lens. In their rewriting, the feminist judges could only use tools, laws, evidence, and social understanding of the world, that could have been accessed by the judge and jury at the time of the original judgment. Across three episodes, we will discuss some of these cases. This episode, we are using a case called Ruxton versus Lang to take a closer look at the impact of perspective-taking in legal decision-making. Whose stories are told in court? Whose stories matter? What type of evidence is deemed legally relevant? And what type is disregarded? This is the Scottish Feminist Judgments Podcast. I'm Gabrielle Blackburn. At the time of the offence, Fiona lived in a flat in Bathgate with her four-year-old son and her ex-partner, Callum Scott. She had recently broken up with Callum and had moved into the spare room while she waited for relocation to other housing. There had been a history of Callum being abusive towards Fiona during their relationship. The incident occurred on the 15th of December 1996. Fiona had been out for drinks and returned home with one of her male colleagues. Callum, who had also been out drinking, returned home shortly after they did. Callum confronted the two of them and became violent. He picked up a knife and slashed the coat of Fiona's colleague, physically throwing him out of the house before turning on Fiona, still brandishing the knife. In fear for her life, she ran to the car and got in. Callum followed her and attempted to get in after her. To escape, Fiona drove away. Fiona says she was driving to find safety at her brother's house, less than two miles away. Knowing that Fiona had been drinking, Callum called the police to report her driving under the influence. Fiona had almost reached her brother's house when she was pulled over by the police. She was upset and crying, and police officers had difficulty making out what she was saying because of her distress. She was breathalyzed and found to be well over the legal limit. She was arrested. At trial, Fiona pled the defense of necessity, claiming she had to drive under the influence because she was fleeing for her life. If her plea was successful, she would be exonerated, free of all charges. But her plea was turned down. Fiona was convicted of drunk driving and given 11 penalty points and a fine of £400. Leave to appeal was refused, which means that Fiona was unable to appeal this decision. The feminist judges in this case imagine an appeal hearing. Ta-da. 
Vanessa Monroe, Professor of Law at the University of Warwick, co-authored Fiona's Imagined Appeal. Vanessa explains what the defence of necessity is and how it was presented in Fiona's case. The basic idea behind the doctrine of necessity is that if successfully pled, it will lead to an acquittal for the accused. But in order to be acquitted, you have to show that you effectively had no choice but to do what you did. So in Fiona Lang's case, that boiled down to two key tests one of which was, was she in immediate danger at the point in time in which she committed the offence? And if she were in immediate danger of death or serious injury at that point in time, did she have a prudent alternative? Was there something else that she could reasonably have done to avoid committing the offence while still protecting herself from that danger. And because what the law's understandably trying to do is to ensure that people don't just commit offences and say, oh, well, I had to. There has to be a reasonable level of kind of fortitude in the face of a threat that you work with before you would commit an offence. So it's establishing that actually in those circumstances, it genuinely was the lesser of two evils. It was your prudent alternative to avoiding the danger. Okay, yeah. And so how did it go for her? Yeah, so it didn't go so well for Fiona Lang in lodging that case. So the case was heard initially at Linlithgow Sheriff Court in front of a single sheriff. And he evaluated her argument on necessity and concluded that she didn't have a defence of necessity available to her. And he decided that on the basis that she failed on both headers. So first of all, Sheriff Ross in the case said that Fiona Lang wasn't in immediate danger um, because the key point in time in his mind was when she was arrested by the police, which was when she'd driven about two miles from her home. And at that point in time, when she was intercepted by the police, the judge took the view that she was no longer in immediate danger of death or serious injury. Furthermore, he then went on to say, even if I'm wrong, even if she was at that point in time still facing an immediate danger, she had a prudent alternative at some point between the point when the danger presented itself and when she was arrested, during which she could have done something different. So because he decided that she didn't have a defence of necessity available, he convicted her of the driving offence. He removed 11 points from her driving licence and he imposed a fine. These two points were an important part of why her defence was turned down. So, in his decision, Sheriff Ross identified these as key questions that would need to be answered if this decision were to be appealed. First, was he wrong in saying that, at the point where she was arrested, Fiona was no longer in life-threatening danger? Second, was he wrong in saying that Fiona had other, non-illegal options that she could have used to get out of her situation? And finally, as a result of these two questions, was he wrong in saying that Fiona was not acting out of necessity? However, as we've mentioned before, in this case, leave to appeal wasn't granted. Vanessa, unlike other feminist judgments in this book, you decided to invent an imaginary appeal rather than rewrite the original judgment itself. Why did you choose to do it in that way? 
So we took the slight liberty of imagining that leave to appeal had been granted, which wasn't such a leap because we already had the certified questions from Sheriff Ross. So we used those as the framework for the appeal. One of the reasons we did that, I think, was because um, arguably as an appeal court, you have slightly more latitude to expand on some of the kind of the concepts and the, and the issues. And also because the actual original judgment itself is a very short judgment, which isn't uncommon for Scottish criminal law cases. But there are really only a few paragraphs in that original judgment where Sheriff Ross really articulates his reasoning as opposed to kind of recounting the evidence that's been heard. So for us, we wanted to try and stretch out the process of that reasoning a bit more. And we thought that we would be able to do that better in an appeal judgment. What do you mean here by stretch out the reasoning? Was there something in particular in the reasoning that you thought needed fleshed out or elaborated on? So I guess there's a few things that we wanted to do in the judgment. And some of those were about the outcome of the judgment. But a lot of them were more about the kind of frame of reference that the judge took when Sheriff Ross approached the case. So as it turned out, they did impact the outcome. But I think for us, one of the things looking at the case was we know there was a history of abuse in the relationship between Fiona Lang, the accused, and Callum Scott, who was her ex-partner at the time who had threatened her. But we know remarkably little in that judgment about the nature of that abuse. We don't know how long it lasted. We know that there had been previous incidents. We know that she was trying to leave Callum Scott, that she had a four-year-old son that was in her custody and that they were still living in a house with him only because they hadn't been reallocated housing by the local authority. So for us looking at the judgment, one of the first things that really struck us was just that The domestic abuse was like the wallpaper in the room. It was everywhere, but nowhere. It wasn't commented on really in the judgment other than a kind of passing remark. Here, Vanessa touches on the central argument that runs through the feminist rewriting. Whose stories are we taking into account when making legal decisions? The abusive nature of Fiona and Callum's relationship formed a core part of Fiona's plea but is barely considered in the original judgment. The feminist rewriting looks at how, by taking this context into proper consideration, a different conclusion would have been reached. There wasn't sufficient appreciation of two things which were relevant to us. One of those was the way in which having experienced a history of abuse like that, the way in which that would have impacted upon Fiona Lang's assessment of danger, which isn't to say that we wanted to go fully to a kind of a subjective standard that if you feel like you're in danger, you're in danger and that's good enough. But there is something significant in the way in which histories of domestic abuse like that can impact your perceptions of danger and risk. And even though the judgment is a historical judgment, there was enough knowledge about domestic abuse at the time to have had some appreciation of that and to have expected a judge to have potentially some appreciation of that. The other thing that was relevant about that was actually we know that domestic abuse 
is not an isolated incident. It's a pattern. It's a cycle of behaviour and control. So not only is it reasonable to think that Fiona Lang's assessment of danger would have been impacted by the history of abuse, but objectively we know that it's significantly more likely that there was a recurring danger of abuse because she was in a cycle of abuse and control. So to look at this one incident on this night in isolation, as the judge does in the case, eclipses that whole context. And our one of our core arguments really in the judgment is that you can only assess danger in this context by having a wider understanding of what was going on in that relationship. The original judge had access to concrete evidence that Callum was a perpetrator of domestic abuse, but the impact of this fact was not properly considered in the original judgment. I spoke to Julie Watson, CEO of Women's Aid Eastern Midlothian, an organisation that specialises in supporting women who have experienced domestic abuse. In my experience, victims and survivors of domestic abuse are the best people at risk assessment. They understand how to manage that risk all the time. They have to make decisions based on a perpetrator's behaviour all the time, every single day. So whether that be, I'm not going to ignore that phone call, I need to pick up that phone because if I don't, the consequences will be, and they will be able to tell you what the consequences will be. They will understand that if they are constantly being questioned, they need to come up with answers. They know if they can or can't go out. So they are constantly risk assessing. The term domestic abuse means something very specific in Scotland. It isn't about situational couples' violence, one partner hitting another as a one-off. Domestic abuse describes a pattern of behaviour. Julie, could you give us a, a bit of a working definition of what we understand domestic abuse as being in Scotland? It is a pattern of behaviour, so that can be acts of assault, it can be intimidation, humiliation, threats... What it's trying to do is to harm, to punish, to frighten the the victim or the person that it's designed to take control over. It's about making somebody isolated. They come isolated from support. It takes away their agency. So their choice of escaping or reporting that abuse becomes lessened because through that ongoing pattern of behaviour, your ability to act and your sense of freedom becomes a lot lessened because every aspect of your everyday behaviour becomes very regulated by the person that you're in a relationship with. And within Scotland, domestic abuse happens within an intimate relationship so it's somebody that you have an intimate relationship with. Fear has been mentioned a couple of times already. It was mentioned in the feminist judgment as affecting um, survivors' assessment of danger. And you've just mentioned it as something that abusers sort of purposely instill in the person they're abusing. Could you tell us a bit more about the role of fear in domestic abuse? fear is absolutely it's it's a core part of domestic abuse normally when when we're in an abusive situation fear is there constantly everything is managed by that sense of fear and perpetrators are really good at picking up and managing that level of fear that you're living with all the time so they will change their behavior to have you in this constant state of fear 
I think one of the best descriptions that women use is it kind of really highlights it for me as they talk about constantly walking on eggshells because the rules change constantly when you live with an abuser. So what was fact in the morning might be different an hour, two hours or a day later. And women constantly have to manage that and yeah, adjust their behaviour just to, to lessen the risk. Da, da, da. Fiona's assessment of the danger she was in was based on her experience of Callum Scott's abuse. This assessment is corroborated by decades of analytics on domestic abuse patterns. So we've known for some time that the most dangerous time for a woman is when she's preparing to leave and and when she's left. We know that that's the time that she's most likely to be killed. So again, for the last couple of decades, we have observed a statistic that two women a week are killed in the UK by a partner or ex-partner. And a lot of those murders, homicides, tend to be around the time that she's left. Why does that happen? Well, that happens because abusive men decide to kill their partners and they decide to do that because there is a sense of loss of control. What we tend to find is that perpetrators will adapt their behavior all the time. So they will use tactics of emotional and psychological abuse. If they don't work anymore, then the violence tends to escalate and violence will tend to be used if the emotional and psychological tactics don't work. And taking someone's life, murder, is a demonstration of that ultimate measure of control, isn't it? You've taken somebody's life. So we've talked about fear and risk assessment and... um when the riskiest time for survivors of domestic abuse is. When when you take that knowledge into account and you apply it to Fiona's case and her plea for necessity, do you think it's reasonable um, to say that she still believed that she was fleeing for her life even when she was two miles away from Callum? And do you think it was reasonable for her to believe that? She shared a home with her partner, but they were no longer in a relationship. So she was planning to leave. This was a really dangerous time. And it was a knife attack. And when she fled the home, he pursued her. So in my eyes, Fiona would have gotten into the car and been aware that he had the likelihood of pursuing her. Her brother was only a couple of miles away. The likelihood is that's exactly where she was going. I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that he would have assumed that that's where she was going. And the fact that he had a knife, the fact that he tried to pursue her in the car would suggest to me that she would be thinking, he's going to follow me here. He's going to come after me. I, I don't think that that was taken into consideration at all. This is how the feminist rewriting of the judgment answers Sheriff Ross's first question. He was wrong. Fiona Lang was right to believe that she was in danger for her life, even after having driven two miles away from Callum. The threat to her life was real, and she knew that. Now we turn to the second question posed by Sheriff Ross. 
Was he wrong in saying that Fiona had other, non-illegal options that she could have used to get out of her situation? The other thing that we wanted to do in the judgment was really interrogate this idea that she had prudent alternatives. Because Sheriff Ross says, look, I don't think she was in immediate danger. And we make the argument that, well, yes, we think she was, if you understand it in the broader context of the pattern of abuse. Um, But the other thing that he then says is, but look, even if I'm wrong, even if she was in immediate danger, she could have done something else to avoid committing the offence. And as I said, he doesn't particularly articulate what that something else would have been. Sharon Cowan, Professor of Feminist and Queer Legal Studies at the University of Edinburgh, co-authored The Feminist Rewriting of Ruxton v. Lang. She explores what Fiona's hypothetical alternatives could have been. In the cross-examination, she actually admitted that it probably would have been better for her to pull over um, and not drive drunk. But then the question is, what then? What do you do then? Do you stay in the car? Well, actually, under the Road Traffic Act provisions under which she was convicted, you're still in charge of a vehicle if you're inside the car, even if you're not driving it. So she wouldn't have avoided a criminal conviction, even if she'd pulled the car over and stopped driving. So then what? So she gets out of the car, but what does she do? Does she stand next to the car? Does she walk? And again, in terms of knowledge, um, whose knowledge are we privileging here? She had had some experience of violence with this ex-partner before. For all she knew, and again, given the state that she was in distress, that the police said she was distressed when they picked her up, she would probably have been wondering whether he was following her because he knew where her brother lived and uh, it was only two miles away so it would not have taken him very long to actually catch her up if she'd been standing around or walking. It doesn't seem clear that there was anything else Fiona could have done in this situation to reach a position of safety. This brings us back to the central part of both Vanessa and Sharon's argument. The question around... What evidence is deemed legally relevant and whose perspective is being taken by default? Whose knowledge is being privileged here? And there's a really telling passage in the original judgment where Sheriff Ross says, Counsel for Fiona Lang have suggested to me that it would not have been prudent for her to have got out of the car and walked but they have presented me with no information about the locality to allow me to draw that conclusion. And that's, I think, a really striking example of when perspective matters, because I'm fairly confident if you put that scenario to most women and said, what's your default here? Is this safe or not safe? The default would be that it's not safe until you present me with evidence that it is. In other words, the default assumption is it's safe for women who've been drinking to walk alone at night in the dark when we know, first of all, that that's not true and also that it contradicts a lot of the advice that women are given by police forces and others to say, don't walk alone at night, especially if you've been drinking. So the theme that's coming out for me there is a kind of lack of understanding or a lack of attention to women's experiences of the world and instead a very kind of male-centric idea that public spaces are by default safe spaces for women especially at night and it's Fiona Lang's lawyer's job to persuade him 
the sheriff that it would not have been safe for her rather than accepting that of course by default those public spaces aren't safe for women and um, so that's a really strong theme I think that comes out in her rewritten judgment is the idea that how does one know so that kind of epistemological challenge that feminism makes to what is seen to be a kind of neutral view of the world right like an assumption about what what kinds of places are safe but that kind of neutral view of the world is actually not a neutral view of the world it's a it's a view of the world that doesn't take into account women's actual experiences of of being unsafe this is how the feminist rewriting of the judgment answers sheriff ross's second question he was wrong there were no prudent alternatives available to fiona the other options were neither reasonable nor safe for her to take. When Fiona was arrested, she was taken to the police station, questioned and charged. The officers then called Callum to discuss whether or not Fiona could be returned home. Satisfied that any danger to Fiona had passed, the officers returned Fiona to her home less than three hours after Callum's initial attack. It is unknown whether they had discussed this with Fiona or asked her if she would have preferred to be dropped off elsewhere. We do not know where Fiona's four-year-old son was during this incident, as the evidence was not presented to the court. Similarly, we do not know whether Callum was ever formally questioned or arrested by the police in relation to his assault upon Fiona and her colleague. There are a lot of things that don't appear in the original judgment. But the fact that we don't know anything about this tells you how selective these case reports are and how selective the judge can be in presenting what they think are relevant facts. So it's really interesting when you pick up a case report and you read the case, especially for the students when we're teaching them about, uh, you know, learning about what cases say and what judges say and so on, that you kind of assume that everything that you need to know is in there until you do an exercise like this. And then you realise, when you just do a little bit more research, and I know you've been talking to Chloe about Drury, Drury is the case covered in episode one in this series. Go listen to that episode if you would like to hear more about it. And then you find out what the background story is and you think, how is this outcome possible knowing what we know? If the court knew that there was a history of domestic violence as in Roxon, if the court knew that this was a person in Drury who had been stalked and that the accused had had several orders preventing him from um, going near her, and restriction orders, how could that outcome have been possible? So it just reminds us, I think, that, again, there's an assumption that the law and the way that the law is presented is a set of neutral facts, a set of neutral, objective, clearly expressed facts. The only things that are left out are peripheral, irrelevant details, when in fact, very important, very central, very significant issues can often be sidelined in these sorts of cases. And that is... One of the things that feminist judgments projects try to do is to bring those things that are very much in the shadows on the sidelines back into focus, into the main part of the picture and to give those people who have been silenced a voice, not to speak on behalf of those people, but to give them space within a judgment, that person's humanity, a space within the judgment. 
this case highlights the importance of questioning the assumptions made in legal judgments. Ruxton and Lang is one of the cases that we've done with students when we've done the bike tours and other workshops with, with undergraduate law students. Although they've signed up for them, they haven't necessarily fully understood what we mean when we talk about the importance of gendered perspectives and judgments and, and one of the things with Ruxton and Lang, which has been really frustrating and fun in equal measure to teach, has been that moment in the judgment where the judge says about prudent alternatives and the fact that no evidence has been presented to me to establish that it's not a safe place. And I think that that's a really stark moment where a lot of the students just go, oh, yeah, his perspective really matters there. And they, you know, they'd read that judgment and they'd skipped over that in that kind of way that you do in a judgment where the logic flows and you just go, yep, 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 no, no evidence presented. Okay, sure, moving on. And then when you just look at that in isolation and go, yeah, but from whose perspective? Where's the starting point? So it's, I think it's quite a useful example of allowing them just to kind of turn the tables and then quite a lot of them chose to rewrite that paragraph in the process of the workshops. As we've touched on, the feminist judgments in this book only draw from social understandings that would have been available to the original judge. To assess how much was known about domestic abuse at the time, Vanessa and Sharon went to the Glasgow Women's Library to look through the archives of Scottish Women's Aid, Scotland's national domestic abuse organisation. From the campaign materials and media reports they found, it was clear that, at the time of the case, Domestic abuse was a publicly acknowledged issue. I think it's not a controversial thing to say that each individual human person brings everything they have as a human being to every decision that they make. And so it would be very weird if judges were somehow not doing that. You know, if they were, if, if somehow they were managing to be in some kind of bell jar vacuum, you know, without any. So it's, it's clear that people come with their own. And when I say prejudices or biases, I'm not judging that. I'm saying that's just a fact of life. Obviously, some biases and, and so on will be negative. You know, some judges will be racist, some judges will be homophobic, so on. But just in general, I think as a human being, judges as human beings bring their own baggage to to what they do for a living and that's just a, a fact of life that I think most people would accept but at the same time judges have to strive to be as fair as possible to be open to hearing as much relevant evidence as possible to putting the knowledge that's put in front of them into the context that is relevant for contemporary times and so that's why I was saying earlier that it was interesting to us when we went to the Glasgow Women's Library how prominent an issue domestic violence would have been even in the 1990s. So for the sheriff to sideline that issue, that really important issue in the way that he did, is very problematic. Bias is inevitable. But ignoring evidence and social understanding that is available doesn't have to be. There needs to be concerted efforts made to include a variety of perspectives and sources of knowledge, wherever possible, to leave room for fairness in legal decision-making.
we were coming at this judgment with a feminist perspective, but there are lots of different kinds of feminist perspectives. And so one of the ways in which feminism has illuminated some of the really difficult moments in law for women is around domestic violence, and domestic abuse. And those campaigns and those legal reform attempts have been going on for decades. And because this case was decided in the 90s, it was quite early, I suppose, in some of those campaign efforts to try to reform the law. But it was a problem that would have been known to society generally and to the judge just through knowledge of things like zero tolerance campaign that was running in Scotland at the time and lots of media attention given to the subject. So these campaigns have been going on for a while. Um, so it wasn't a new thing to say the law wasn't treating women who'd been subjected to domestic abuse fairly. I mean, people had been saying that for a while. But what was interesting about this case was the way that the judge dismissed so much of what, I mean, we might call it something like women's knowledge or women's experience of what it's like to live in a world where violence is implicit and explicit and then what you do when you're trying to avoid that violence how do you escape that violence one paragraph really stood out to sharon when she was reading the original judgment the paragraph when the sheriff says that the police officers took her back to her home at her own request and they had a word with Callum Scott and then they left her there. And I'm like, they had a word with Callum Scott and then they left her there at her own request? What happened to him? He slashed the jacket off and attacked the guy that she brought home with him and he he chased her down the street with a knife. Why did they not arrest him? I mean, that's just incredible to me. So when you read paragraphs like that in a judgment, that raises massive alarm bells What happened to Callum Scott? Why was he not arrested? In their judgment, Vanessa and Sharon write, There is no indication from the materials available to this court that Mr. Scott was formally questioned or arrested by the police in relation to his assault upon Ms. Lang and her male companion. Less than three hours after this violent incident took place, the appellant was returned to her home by the police. The officers who returned Ms. Lang reported that, having spoken with Mr. Scott, they were satisfied that any danger had passed. It is not apparent from the facts before us that those officers discussed with Ms. Lang her own assessment of the ongoing threat posed by Mr. Scott, or asked whether she would have preferred, instead, to be conveyed to her brother's house or a local domestic violence refuge. Julie discusses how she sees this lack of accountability of Callum's actions as a reflection of a wider pattern in responses to violence against women. I think around gender-based violence, there's just so much victim-blaming. And those comments are very victim-blaming. They hold the woman responsible for the abuse that's happened to her. That's something that we haven't been very good at in Scotland, is actually holding perpetrators to account for their behaviour. That's been something that's been lacking. And I I still don't think that we're there yet. 
perhaps this is a victim of success of, of the women's movements is that we have been very good at kind of highlighting the impact on women and, and getting services for women to flee. But actually, those services will continue to need to exist if we don't tackle perpetrator behaviour and if we don't hold them accountable, if we don't have robust interventions in place that say to perpetrators, you know what, that behaviour is not okay, that that cannot be acceptable or tolerable in our society. It's, it's a massive area that we need to look at is holding perpetrators to account. It seems like this judgment here sort of vindicates him in a way. He's been abusive for a long period of time and this is known to the authorities, but he still feels fully confident in calling the police to get her into trouble despite the fact that he's just been violently assaulting her. And here the judgment kind of supports that by saying, yes, this is this is acceptable behavior. We won't question you at all. You'll fully get away with it. Is this kind of how you see this case? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. And I suppose when I was reading it, that that's where my, I was getting a bit angry reading it because it just felt so unjust. In their reflective statement, Vanessa and Sharon write, In a sense, the reason we chose to rewrite this case was less about what it did say and more about what it did not say. Her abuse and its impact upon her was barely acknowledged in the original judgment. For this and other reasons, this case made us angry. It still does. But writing this feminist judgment gave us an opportunity to draw attention with all the power of judicial voice to how violence against women is often minimised or occluded, even where, as in this case, its presence and consequences are glaringly obvious. This judgment, like many others in this book, was dense. As with the first episode, it was filled with what felt to me as a layperson, like plot twists. Deciding what to keep in and what to leave out of the story was very difficult. I had to admit the fact that, despite Callum attacking two people with a knife and pursuing Fiona down the street armed, this was described by the sheriff as a couple's fight. I had to leave out the fact that, while drunk driving is absolutely a serious offence, the police were able to respond to Callum's call quick enough to intercept Fiona after a few minutes. In contrast, evidence shows that at the time, police response to domestic abuse calls was much slower than this. I also left out the fact that this case was happening during a national campaign against knife crime. Knife crime was at the forefront of public safety efforts and was being taken very seriously. But somehow, here, the very same crime happening in a domestic setting rather than a public setting was not deemed quite as dangerous. Of all the issues that I had to leave out, the one that stuck with me the most was the impact that the sentence had on Fiona. Vanessa and Sharon write, At the time of the incident, Ms. Lang was attempting to extract herself from an abusive relationship, but without recourse to alternative accommodation for herself and her four-year-old son. By the time of the trial, 
she was about to take up employment in a solicitor's firm, earning £120 a week, which presumably would have helped put her and her son's future safety on a more secure footing. Ms Lang had estimated weekly outgoings of £80 a week, and the sheriff imposed a fine repayable at a rate of £10 a week. This would have substantially reduced her disposable income and diminished her prospects for independent living for almost one year. In my view, justice demands that in cases such as this, where the offender is the primary carer of a young child, a court should consider more fully than it did here the implications of the proposed penalty on the entire family unit and weigh those concerns in the balance alongside the public's interest in the prosecution and punishment of criminal wrongdoing. What is the point of law? Is the blanket application of statutory obligation the most important thing to uphold? Or should we be striving to legislate in a way that upholds the original intent of the law, whatever that may be? We will discuss these questions and explore whether there is a difference between the spirit of a law and the way it is applied in practice in the next episode of the Scottish Feminist Judgments podcast. To access support for domestic abuse, you can call the Scottish Domestic Abuse and Forced Marriage Helpline on 0800 027 1234 or find contact details for your local women's aid group on womensaid.scot. This episode was co-written by Gabrielle Blackburn and Amrita Alwalia McMiddis. Interviews, narration and production by Gabrielle Blackburn. We would like to thank Vanessa Monroe, Julie Watson and Sharon Cowan for participating in these interviews. The full feminist judgment of Ruxton versus Lang and many others can be found in the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project book, edited by Sharon Cowan, Chloe Kennedy and Vanessa Monroe. The music in this episode is Absentia, written and produced by Alison Burns. This song was commissioned as part of the project's art exhibit, which you can discover in the virtual exhibition on the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project website.